Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop update on the treatment of pancreatic cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations as well as pancreatic cancer organizations. And I really want to call out to the Hirschberg Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research, the Lutzgarten Foundation, and the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, all of which are specific to pancreatic cancer and wonderful resources as well. Now, because of all of this collaboration and your interest in the program today, we have over 556 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Colombia, Egypt, India, Switzerland, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really are from all over the world. And it really is a credit to all of you that you're choosing to spend this next hour with us. Now, today's activity is supported by AbbVie and Celgene Corporation. I really want to thank them for their support of the program and for their collaborative efforts in supporting the program. This is really important in making this possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Eileen O'Reilly. And Dr. O'Reilly is Associate Director, David M. Rubenstein Center for Pancreatic Cancer, Attending Physician, member Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and professor of medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. O'Reilly is going to be addressing an overview of pancreatic cancer, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. O'Reilly. Thank you very much, uh, Carolyn, and good afternoon, uh, everybody. It's a privilege to, to be here. So the, the topic uh, for today is pancreas cancer, but just to hone in specifically, we're going to talk primarily about pancreas adenocarcinoma, which is the most common type of uh, pancreas cancer. The other entity being neuroendocrine cancer, uh, which won't be the, the, the key focus today. So a little bit of background about this disease. This disease is relatively common. About 50,000 people are anticipated uh, to be diagnosed in the U.S. this year. And this is a cancer that's on the rise. And that's, that's a notable fact because it's in contradistinction to almost any other uh, solid organ malignancy that we think about, such as colon, lung, prostate, or breast cancer, the incidence for those malignancies have plateaued and have started to, to decline. And it's not fully understood why there's these changes in, with regard to the, the rise in frequency of pancreas cancer, but in part this may relate to the fact that we're all getting, getting older. It potentially relates to the adoption of a, a Western lifestyle, so there may be some dietary, exercise, uh, and other lifestyle contributions uh, that contribute. And also a percentage of this disease arises on a genetic background. And we'll come back to this in a few minutes because that has some implications with regard to, to treatment. I think it's fair to acknowledge that pancreas cancer has a, a challenging reputation. And 
This is uh, deserved in some ways. Uh, it has uh, an environment that sort of nurtures the cancer cells and may interfere with uh, drugs getting there. It is an environment that doesn't tend to have the key immune cells, and these days that's very important for leveraging the immune system to try and tackle the cancer. Having said that, there are a lot of strategies now that are in the clinic that are trying to uh, reverse that inherent immune uh, resistance. And for the most part, we don't have characteristics based on either pathology or certain blood tests that allow us to sort of individualize treatment. Again, having said that, there are some strong hints that for subsets of people, uh, there may be opportunities to uh, take what we call a precision medicine or a very refined approach uh, to thinking about the disease. So in terms of genetics, there's a couple of things to be aware of, and uh, we're always thinking about this in the context of the person that we meet. Could there be any implication for that individual if there's a genetic predisposition, and what are the implications for healthy family members of people diagnosed with pancreas cancer? And the estimate is that about 10 to 15% of this cancer does have this uh, predisposition, driven primarily by changes in the BRCA genes, known for their association with breast and ovary cancer, but more recently uh, increased awareness that they may relate to pancreas cancer incidence and increasingly prostate cancer. And there are drugs that are in the clinic that target this. Uh, certain chemotherapy agents can be particularly effective in this context and experimentally classes of drugs called PARP inhibitors uh, selectively target uh, the genetic background to pancreas cancer when it arises in that context. So these days we'll, we'll strongly think about this and, and, and discuss uh, whether to look in the tumor at the genetic makeup and also look in the family lineage or what we call the germline to see if there are clues with regard to treatment. So the other kind of lifestyle contribution to pancreas cancer is uh, cigarette smoking. About a quarter of the disease relates to that. And uh, so a big sort of public health message in families where this disease is present is, is for people not to smoke, and we sort of encourage this uh, as much as, as possible. Right now, there aren't... Uh, proven screening approaches for the general population uh, because we struggle to identify who's at increased risk for this disease. But in some families where there is a clear gene that predisposes to pancreas cancer or there's just a clustering of pancreas cancer in that family, then we do consider on a research basis doing selective screening uh, for healthy individuals in that family. And this is a, an area of a major focus in terms of re research. There's a lot of imaging uh, approaches, uh, early blood-based uh, markers, and other considerations that are being evaluated in, in this context. And I think the, the hope is that this might uh, provide in, in the future a real opportunity to have uh, an impact on, on the overall natural outcome of this disease. So switching to some of the more clinical aspects of pancreas cancer, uh, the, we practically break it down into three groups, uh, a group of people who have uh, operable uh, disease, a group of people who have localized non-operable disease, 
and usually that relates to, to major blood vessel, artery and vein uh, involvement. And there's a group in between that's called borderline resectable where there is a potential to uh, facilitate surgery following initial chemotherapy-based treatments. So it's about a, a, a third of patients will have localized non-operable, about 15% will have operable disease up front, and then the other major category is metastasis or where the cancer has spread, and this is typically when the disease involves the liver, lungs, inner lining of the abdominal cavity, sometimes bone, and lymph nodes, and that's about 50% of people who are diagnosed, uh, they'll have metastasis at their initial presentation. And treatment approaches really depends where on that spectrum uh, one's cancer lies. So typically for people who have metastatic disease, the, the primary focus will be medical treatments, uh, chemotherapy-based treatments, uh, will include uh, options for clinical trials, new drugs, and will also include a big focus, and Dr. Viradicherry uh, shortly will, will add to this, a uh, big focus on, on symptom management and supportive care, because keeping the body as healthy and as strong as possible from the nutritional perspective, from the pain perspective, uh, is critical to optimizing the chances for the best outcome in this disease. For patients with operable uh, disease, there's the traditional approach is initial surgery followed by post-operative chemotherapy, that's called adjuvant treatment. But there is a shift here in uh, North America, and indeed, uh, I would say globally to a degree, to think about giving uh, treatment upfront, uh, as in chemotherapy-based treatments, with the idea being that's early delivery of medication to try and address any microscopic stray cells that we can't see with the best scans, but we know statistically can, can be lurking. And we don't have clear evidence yet that that is a better way to go, so reversing the order of doing chemotherapy first, followed by surgery rather than vice versa. But there are a number of biologic reasons that make a compelling argument in selected circumstances uh, to, to think about that. And increasingly, there's a group of patients that we know at the time that we meet them that their cancer isn't operable, but there is that potential if we can get the, the best response in terms of trying to prevent metastases and to try and facilitate some shrinkage to allow the goal of being able to do a clean removal, and that essentially means uh, not leaving uh, residual cancer cells behind, which we know ultimately isn't uh, the best outcome. So a lot of, uh, of work in, in this area trying to uh, refine uh, particular approaches. At the current time, uh, for people who do undergo surgery, uh, a standard uh, paradigm would be giving uh, a combination of medications, typically gemcitabine and an oral drug called kepcitabine. This is based on a large European study that was relatively recently published, and that's become uh, an increasing international standards. We expect to have two other major studies report out in the next year to 18 months that may um, add to choices in the post-operative setting. That's looking in particular at a drug called napaclitaxel combined with gemcitabine and a combination of drugs called fulfirinox. Uh, it includes a drug called 5-FU, 
oxaliplatin, arenatecan, and a vitamin called leucovorin. Both of those latter combinations are well established uh, for people who don't have operable pancreas cancer. But the question that the studies have asked is, is giving them uh, after complete removal, where we know, again, there may be microscopic cells uh, present, does that improve the outcome? And are the trade-offs in terms of the downsides of those treatments acceptable in that setting? So we sort of look forward uh, to hearing those results in the, in the next uh, 18 months or so. So in this setting of non-operable pancreas cancer, we have a number of drugs uh, at uh, our disposal. We're always looking uh, for more, uh, but they include those two particular combinations. And for fit, otherwise generally healthy people, those two combinations uh, typically are, are uh, major choices as the initial treatment uh, for pancreas cancer. We place a lot of emphasis on consideration of clinical trials and potential participation in clinical trials. I think that's access to state-of-the-art in terms of the science, and uh, we think that also helps provide the best uh, clinical care. And this isn't always feasible, but it's also how one tries to, to move the field forward for patients and families uh, with this disease. So I think that's a really important topic, and I know we're going to come back to it. A couple of things just about selected targeted approaches in pancreas cancer, and there are a few settings where we do think about this now, and that's in the context of a small subset of people who have a change in their uh, genetics in their tumor where they have something called an MSI high tumor or mismatch repair deficient tumor. That's probably about one to one and a half percent of people with pancreas cancer. The importance there is that's a subset of people where there is an approved immune therapy of approach uh, which has meaningful activity. So it's something in the right context we'll look for, but in truth, uh, we won't often find, but it is important for that person uh, when we do. And similarly, circling back to the genetics, uh, the key issue is uh, if there is, uh, for example, a BRCA, a BRCA mutation, uh, then uh, we'll often make it a, a point of having a, a platinum or a DNA damaging uh, drug as part of the treatment because there's selective uh, benefit in that uh, context for, for patients. And there are a number of trials sort of focusing on this and, and PARP inhibitors uh, which have a role there. And I, I want to conclude this, this section by just making uh, one other very important point that I know my colleagues are, are, are going to, uh, to pick up on, and that's the essence of, of multidisciplinary care. Uh, for again, for having the best outcome in this disease, we want to make sure we do the best job, not just in terms of selecting the right uh, medication, but getting uh, the nutritional status as optimized as possible, addressing uh, symptoms that inhibit our ability to successfully uh, deliver treatment, and I think also focusing on the significant psychosocial implications of what this disease incurs uh, for patients and their family. But I, I do think that uh, progress is real in this disease. It's incremental, uh, but there are thankfully tangible uh, new uh, directions. And I think the other key thing that's critical to 
seeing a future in, in this disease is that there's a recognition uh, that this is a essentially a public health crisis to come in terms of the rising incidence and there's thankfully more research dollars going in uh, now to, to pancreas cancer and that makes us all in the community and I think uh, patients and families sort of excited uh, to see the next steps. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. O'Reilly. That was outstanding and a wonderful overview of, of pancreatic cancer and just its treatments and just and and the heavy focus which will continue on the multidisciplinary team approach. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Gori Varatachari. Dr. Varatachari is professor, Department of Gastrointestinal GI Medical Oncology, Division of Cancer Medicine, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Varatachari will address the role of clinical trials, their contribution to treatment options symptom, side effect, and pain management, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Bratipari. Thank you, Eileen, and thank you, Carolyn. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, <clears throat> thanks for the opportunity to discuss uh, clinical trials and managing symptoms for our patients. Um, I would like to start with uh, providing an overview of the role of clinical trials and start with some common terminology we use when discussing uh, trials, and then the second part of my talk will be uh, symptom management. So um, as Dr. O'Reilly uh, alluded to, innovative research is crucial to make meaningful progress for this challenging disease, and research itself contributes to treatment options for our patients. Now, there is a vast amount of information on the Internet, and um, it may be helpful if one can navigate the system successfully, but more often what I hear from my patients is that there is too much information and they can feel lost uh, and overwhelmed. So um, let me discuss the three phases of trials, and there is a phase four as well, but it's not too relevant for our discussion today. So uh, phase one trials specifically is becoming very important for pancreatic cancer because many patients go on phase one uh, trials um, and are offered um, a phase 1A, which is for all comers, uh, cancers, or a phase 1B, which is specific for pancreatic cancer patients. And a phase 1 trial is the earliest trial in the life of a new drug. They are considered to be hypotheses generating and to learn quickly if a new treatment is of value to evaluate it vigorously going forward. They are usually small trials with uh, less than 30 patients, though that trend is changing now. And for the last many years, we've had more and more patients go on a phase one trial, and the lines between the phase one and two are getting a bit blurry. A typical phase one trial, um, like I said, may be open to a patient with any cancer or pancreatic cancer alone. And these trials are done to build on what we have learned from the laboratory. Our preclinical studies are animal models. So most patients entering a phase one trial often have advanced cancer and may or may not have undergone all standard treatments available to them. Uh, as Dr. O'Reilly mentioned, uh, there are combination therapies that are offered to our patients with gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel or another combination called folferinox. And a phase one trial may um, incorporate some of these drugs, um, and that could be a backbone and add new drugs to these or be separate drugs altogether. So the aim of a phase one clinical trial is to look for a safe dose range for a new drug and um, evaluate the side effects. 
and patients may not benefit from this treatment, but one should remember that there is usually adequate science suggesting a chance of benefit. Phase one trials are important because they are the first step in, in finding new treatments or building on our existing treatments. Uh, there are uh, many targeted drugs and immunotherapeutic combinations that are currently being studied in the phase one setting alone or with chemo at this time. Uh, phase two trials, which is something else uh, pancreatic cancer patients may be offered, are considered efficacy-seeking trials. They are done to find out if a new treatment in pancreatic cancer works for the disease and to learn more about the side effects that we have uh, had some information from the phase one trials and how to manage these. They're usually larger than phase one trials and can have up to 100, 250 patients taking part. And nowadays, most of the pancreatic cancer phase two trials are randomized, which means that uh, patients taking part are separately, uh, randomly uh, separated into two groups. Uh, one group gets the new treatment and the other the standard of care treatment. And uh, this is a good trend from the science point of view since it does help us understand if the new drug has any meaningful added value to proceed to the next step. Phase three trials are trials that compare new treatments to the best currently available treatments or standard therapies. And phase three trials are usually large trials of several hundred patients and are randomized. One group again gets the new treatment and the other treatment, other group gets the standard treatment. Um, so all the standard of care therapies that were discussed by Dr. O'Reilly are, uh, have been studied in a phase one, two, and three setting. And, um, Nowadays also, uh, besides these, we are seeing more predictive biomarker-enriched uh, study designs. Now, what does that mean? Uh, predictive biomarkers help us assess or predict uh, the most likely response to a particular treatment type. So there's a lot of interest in understanding which drug is a good fit in which patient instead of expecting one treatment uh, fit uh, all strategy. So one example of that is a, a drug called PEG-PH20. It's a recombinant human um, hyaluronidase enzyme. It's an enzyme that uh, helps, um, uh, it accumulates in the stroma, and uh, this uh, drug may help uh, degrade that, uh, uh, that enzyme. And the phase three trial for this particular uh, drug is enrolling patients who have high HA levels. So there is a biomarker, and uh, having that biomarker then allows enrollment. There's also a lot of interest in immunotherapy-based trials in pancreatic cancer in the phase one and two setting. And um, uh, there are also trials looking at um, certain targets based on patients' genomic studies, which means that the tissue, uh, the pancreatic cancer tissue, is studied uh, to understand the genetic sequence to see if there could be a match with a particular trial. Tissue access can be difficult at times in pancreatic cancer, so it's really important that we do use tissue wisely and uh, the, the trial is, uh, is investigated. Um, so bottom line, there are many trials that are enrolling patients with pancreatic cancer to study novel therapies, and there are some websites one can consider, including www.cancer.gov, um, clinicaltrials.gov, or www.pancan.org. But most importantly, it's important to start this conversation with your doctor and look at your options. So some of the questions you can ask your doctor are, 
uh, which phase trial am I being offered? Is this specific to pancreatic cancer? Are their side effects different from the current non-trial options I'm being offered? Can I stop therapy at any time? How often are tests being done? Blood tests, uh, need for a, a line or a portacad if one does not have one? Uh, will my insurance company pay for all the expenses involved with the, with the trial? Most groups will check that independently. And are there any special instructions for my family members? <clears throat> so, <clears throat> bottom line, I would say uh, clinical trials do increase uh, patients' options beyond the drugs we have available today. And you should have an early conversation with your doctor about where and when a trial fits in your care. As Dr. O'Reilly mentioned, progress is incremental, and we should continue to stay hopeful and look for uh, new options for our patients for pancreatic cancer. So I'm going to go into the second part of my talk and switch gear and talk a bit about symptom management, uh, which is crucial to helping our patients feel better. Advanced pancreatic cancer causes pain in patients, but it is important to note that Cancer pain can be managed very effectively in most patients. Uh, the severity and occurrence of pancreatic cancer pain depends on the position of the cancer, the stage of the cancer, the location of metastases, and as we are all aware, pain affects each person very differently. Also, depression, poor sleep, fatigue, and anxiety can lower the pain threshold. Now, the goal of pain management is twofold. First, of course, we want to make our patient pain-free. But second, as important as being pain-free is to be as functional as possible to enhance quality of life and minimize interference with the daily routine. So the treatment approaches for pain control are classified as either pharmacological, which is essentially pills, or non-pharmacological approaches. The pharmacological pain control involves the use of painkillers, <clears throat> and if <clears throat> Tylenol or ibuprofen-type drugs don't help, most pancreatic cancer patients do receive narcotics. Morphine, oxycodone, methadone are part of the pain therapy. Typical side effects may include a nausea, constipation, sedation, urinary retention, itching. And as doctors, we have to educate our patients regarding these side effects and prescribe additional drugs to manage the side effects, especially constipation. Some patients with pancreatic cancer may be candidates for a procedure called celiac nerve block or neurolysis. These patients often present with back pain. The, the block itself is an outpatient procedure done by a pain team, but again, it's important for all the doctors and the healthcare professionals to come together and decide what's the best option for the patient, and sometimes a procedure like this can reduce the need for narcotics in a patient who's having a hard time with constipation um, and uh, uh, drowsiness. Other approaches include uh, radiation in select patients, especially if the pain is from the primary tumor or bone metastases, and rarely select patients may uh, benefit from a neurosurgical uh, procedure um, called an epidural pump. In my practice, we've, I, I rarely use epidural pumps. I don't think we need that in the presence of excellent uh, uh, medical control. Now, beside pain, there are some other troubling symptoms that need to be addressed, and fatigue is a very important symptom in our patients to keep in mind and talk about. Cancer-related fatigue is important to address because it can have a negative influence on our patients' quality of life. It is important to not just accept fatigue as a new normal, but discuss this with your healthcare team if there are any correctable options. Several contributing factors that are reversible include 
management of depression, pain, opioid use, anemia, chemotherapy doses itself, lack of sleep, dehydration, poor nutrition, and lack of exercise. All of this can cause a domino effect, and the healthcare team can work with the patient on some of these to minimize their fatigue. I also want to mention a few words on other symptoms that require palliation, one being jaundice. Uh, jaundice can develop because of the blockage in the bile ducts uh, or from cancer burden in the liver. It causes yellowing of skin, eyes, urine, um, loss of appetite, weight loss, nausea, and itching. And in patients with advanced cancer, if it's from a blocked bile duct, the treatment of choice is a stent insertion into the bile duct to allow drainage of bile into the intestine. If there's buildup of fluid in the abdomen called ascites, this can be removed by administering a needle or sometimes a catheter into the abdomen. Weight loss is a huge concern to doctors and patients, and we check our patients' weight every visit. There are several reasons, including chemotherapy-induced nausea, loss of appetite, no taste, pancreatic insufficiency, and sometimes even depression. Uh, Maria Petzl will definitely talk more about managing weight loss in pancreatic cancer after Whipple surgery. I want to mention that as oncologists, after reviewing chemotherapy side effects and making some changes and reviewing the cancer status, if the weight loss and especially poor appetite continues, we do sometimes consider appetite-building medications for our patients. So lastly, quality of life has great importance in pancreatic cancer management, and many patients understandably have significant concerns about the quality of life, so it's very crucial that the healthcare team, the patient, and their family evaluate this on a regular, ongoing basis. There is a lot that can be done for depression, pain, fatigue, weight loss, and chemotherapy-related side effects. And together, the team can make the best decision for the patient. Thank you so much for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Prasachari. That was outstanding um, and really covered a lot of really essential issues that people struggle with in terms of the just management of their the disease itself and also just the participation in clinical trials, how important that is, and just want to call out to that. So thank you. And our next speaker um, is Ms. Maria Petzl. Ms. Petzl is uh, actually Senior Clinical Dietitian, Pancreas Surgery Program, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Petzl is going to address managing weight loss and eating tips. Uh, it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Petzl. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I appreciate the opportunity to speak, and I sure appreciate everybody who's joined the call today. Weight loss, diarrhea, enzymes, questions about what to eat, these are common concerns for patients and families uh, with pancreatic cancer. In general, our nutrition goals are to prevent or reverse poor nutrition, to help maintain dose and schedule of cancer treatments, manage symptoms, maintain or improve weight and strength, and to maximize quality of life. And as Dr. O'Reilly was saying, this is a multidisciplinary team effort. So medications can be helpful, nutrition tips can be helpful, et cetera. As Dr. Vradachari said, there are many causes of weight loss. This can be related to inadequate intake due to side effects of treatment. It could be inadequate absorption due to pancreatic insufficiency or diarrhea, um, and sometimes tumor-induced weight loss as well. In general, the recommendations I make to all of my patients to help with managing side effects, help with getting adequate intake, 
throughout the day is to eat small meals frequently through the day. So six to eight snack-sized meals can be less of a burden than trying to think about sitting down to three main meals. It's really important to plan meals and snacks ahead of time. Get plenty of fluids. So just like you need to eat six to eight times a day, most individuals will need six to eight cups, which is ounces, eight ounces, um, six to eight cups of fluid per day. For those who have difficulty tolerating fats, I do recommend limiting um, portions of fat-containing foods, but certainly small amounts of fat can be included in meal spread throughout the day. And it's important to choose nutrient-dense foods, so foods that are full of vitamins, minerals, including protein with each meal, um, rather than just having high-sugar, high-calorie foods that really don't come along with, with additional nutritional benefits. And also activity is very important. This can help promote digestion. This can help promote normal bowel, bowel function and also help with appetite. Diarrhea can be a common side effect for many individuals. And regardless of the cause of diarrhea, whether it's chemotherapy or uncontrolled pancreatic insufficiency, for those who are experiencing diarrhea, it can be helpful to limit lactose-containing foods, to limit foods that are high in insoluble fiber like raw fruits with thick peels or raw vegetables, whole grain foods. It's important to limit foods that are highly sweetened with lots of sugar or with sugar alcohols. But for those that are experiencing diarrhea, you can eat more foods that have soluble fiber to help gel the stool. These are things like apple without the peel or applesauce, banana, oats, barley, citrus without membrane. And it's important to replace electrolytes that are lost with frequent stooling. So potassium and sodium are important. These can be consumed from uh, foods that are high in potassium or sodium, or can be part of special nu liquid nutrition, such as children's electrolyte drinks, um, or oral rehydration solutions, or diluted sports drinks, um, low sugar options like G2. A common cause of uh, symptoms for individuals with pancreatic cancer are, is pancreatic insufficiency. Symptoms can be feelings of indigestion, cramping after meals, large amounts of gas, very foul-smelling gas or stools, floating stools, greasy stools, light-colored stools, stools that are frequent, loose, or unexplained weight loss. If you have any of these symptoms, it's important to discuss this with your health care team. You might benefit from a prescription of pancreatic enzymes. It's important to keep in mind with pancreatic enzymes that every person is different and has different needs for the amount of pancreatic enzymes that they take. The amount varies on the disease, the treatment, and the amount of fat in one's diet or in each meal. Often the dose will need to change. Sometimes patients will need more with some meals than with others. It is important that once you find the brand and the dose that works for you that you stick with that. Individuals may be asking, what should I eat? And I, as I mentioned earlier, it's important to include protein with, with each of those six small meals or small snacks each day. We get protein from um, lean cuts of meat, so chicken, fish, turkey, beef, pork on occasion. We also get protein from beans, peas, lentils, from dairy products and eggs, from milk alternatives such as soy milk, hemp milk,
high-protein nut milks, and also from meat alternatives such as tofu, edamame, veggie burgers. We get protein from nuts and seeds and also from protein powders. We want to pair our protein along with a good source of calories such as a fruit, vegetable, or complex carbohydrates such as bread, pasta, rice, or cereal. For those that can tolerate small amounts of fat, these are another great way to get some additional calories, especially for those who feel full quickly. So olive, canola, and peanut oil for cooking, avocado, olives, nuts and seeds, these are great additions to small snacks and meals. Oftentimes patients find that it's helpful to supplement regular food with liquid nutritional drinks. There are certainly commercially available nutritional drinks, but there are also the option to make smoothies at home. It's important if you're making a smoothie at home to consider what your protein source is and also consider getting a small amount of fat so that you are truly making a smoothie that is a small meal replacement. There are some great nutrition resources available through Cancer Care and through the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. I recommend that all patients request a consult at your cancer center with a registered dietitian if there's not a dietitian available, Cancer Care or PanCan can help guide you to find a dietitian who specializes in oncology. I'll turn it back over to you, Carolyn. Thank you so much for this opportunity to present. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Petzl. That was really excellent and really so many important tips for everybody in terms of nutrition and eating and I can't thank you enough, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Elizabeth Ezra. Ms. Ezra is an oncology social worker, and she's our pancreatic cancer program coordinator at Cancer Care. Ms. Ezra will present Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Ms. Ezra. Thank you, Carolyn. I am happy to be part of this important call today. I am an oncology social worker and I work with many people with pancreatic cancer and their loved ones. I would like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support net network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care's programs, including individual counseling support groups, either over the telephone or online, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help and some limited financial assistance, as well as chemo copay assistance are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology, oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends. They are also trained to help cancer patients and their families tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as the financial demands, the physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact and care. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Cancer affects the whole person and the entire family. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Joining a support group 
is a way to connect with others who are going through similar situations or have similar problems. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. Support groups are a safe place where you can voice your concerns and your fears. Feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. At this time, Cancer Care is recruiting for our pancreatic cancer telephone support group. There is also a specific caregiver pancreatic group that's online. Cancer Care can provide some financial assistance for transportation and, as I said before, some chemo co-payment assistance. If you are interested in any of Cancer Care's services, please call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673 or on our website at www.cancercare.org. Our website is very comprehensive, and you can find a lot of additional information on your cancer diagnosis and the, tr- and the treatment you need to receive. As we have learned from today's program, there, are, there is a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your family. Your social worker can help you prioritize and actually rehearse the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and the information that you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Esther. That was wonderful. And um, so um, Liz has really presented to all of you the services that you can access from Cancer Care and um, and so please take advantage of those services. And also we've identified other organizations as well throughout um, particularly PENCAM that have other resources so that you really um, recognize that there are free services for you that can really make a difference. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. So I'm going to ask um, Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question by the time we conclude today, before we conclude today, I will give you resources to get your questions answered. But I'm going to ask Ayala to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Stephanie F. Your line is now open. Thank you so much. This is an excellent seminar. Thank you so much, Caroline. Um, I have a question for Eileen O'Reilly. Um, I am HER2 positive. I was at ER negative, PR negative, November 1, 2006, breast cancer survivor. But I did the BRCA1 and BRCA testing, which was negative. There's a new test called the BART test. showed I had inherited an ATM gene. I wanted to know more about that because it said you have potential for breast cancer, which I had, and also pancreatic cancer, and also a neuro a neurological disease called, called Marie's syndrome ataxia, which is in my family. So I'd love to know for other people also about this particular gene from the BART test. Well, thank you um, for that question, Stephanie. And um, Dr. O'Reilly, can you address Stephanie's question in a general way? And then, of course, Stephanie, we will advise you to go back to your treating healthcare team. But um, Dr. O'Reilly, if you could just address these, the concept of the, this testing. 
thank thank you for that question that's a it's a very interesting one and a couple of points to discuss so the atm gene is a is a big gene and we know it can have a potential association with breast cancer and that it can be potentially associated with pancreas cancer However, there are certain uh, changes in the gene that may have a stronger connection compared to others. So these specifics require, I think, expert genetic input uh, on an individual basis uh, to guide one. What I would also say, though, that in, in general terms, if we do find uh, this gene in, in a person who has pancreas cancer, it potentially gives us a clue about uh, certain treatment approaches. There are uh, drugs analogous to the BRCA setting that may have impact in this context. That's not been, been validated yet because the frequency of this change is relatively uncommon, but it's a, certainly, I would say, an area of emerging interest, but all the details around this have yet to be fully defined. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Pratichari, did you want to add anything to that? Um, uh, I agree with uh, Dr. O'Reilly. And uh, given um, your personal history of breast cancer and uh, some of the neurological deficits you mentioned in your family, given the germline ATM mutation, um, you know, it would be helpful to see a genetic counselor as well as a team that um, um, works closely with uh, 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 patients and uh, individuals with uh, high risk for pancreatic cancer so that if you're interested, you could uh, uh, consider getting into one of these trials that uh, follow patients who are at risk for pancreatic cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, our next question comes from one of our online participants. Um, and the question, and there are a few people asking this question. I'm going to ask Dr. Raleigh if you could start with this one. Where can we find accurate data on pancreatic cancer survival rates? And if you could address this in a general way, and of course. Yes, uh, certainly. So where do we uh, identify outcomes for pancreas cancer in terms of reliable resources uh, information-wise? So I think there's a lot of information out there. Um, some of the respected sites would include the NCI, government sites, Pancreas Cancer Action Network, et cetera, and there are some large databases uh, which speak to this topic. However, uh, all of these um, areas have the limitation that they are statistics and, and don't tell us how real people are going to do, and statistics are a reference. Uh, thankfully, a lot of people will uh, do significantly be better than the statistics uh, might suggest. Uh, sometimes uh, it is the other way. Um, but I think most importantly, a person's level of well-being, other medical issues that they may have, their stage of disease, their extent of disease, their ability to handle treatment, all of those factors uh, specifically individualize the outcome uh, with regard to survival uh, for this cancer. And I think for a particular person uh, to bring this directly to the treating medical team, uh, because they are going to be best positioned to counsel that individual and their family about where in the spectra uh, that those statistics might fall. And Dr. Bhattacharya, did you want to add anything to that? Or? 
Yes, I agree with Dr. O'Reilly. Um, it's um, it's always difficult, uh, you know, when there are general statistics on the internet. Uh, and uh, what that exactly means for each patient really depends on so many things. And even as the situation evolves uh, based on um, response to treatment, future CAT scans uh, is what really defines uh, one's prognosis. So um, visiting with one's healthcare team uh, is, for, is the best way to really understand for each individual uh, what, what that means. Excellent, thank you. Um, and um, so that's an excellent question, and we do encourage you to take that um, also back to your treating healthcare team as well. Now, we have another question. This is something to um, start with Dr. Shratachari with this question. Um, an oncologist told me recently that the use of plastic containers for food causes pancreatic cancer. He mentioned the year 1972. So, Dr. Shratachari, if you could address this in a general way, if there is any... Um, if there's any merit to this, if there's anything I, um, to this, or if you want to comment. So the question is heating foods in plastic containers? In pl yes, I recently told me that use of plastic containers for food causes pancreatic cancer. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot out there which is just not uh, endorsed in the scientific literature. I would say that there is very little data right now to um, clearly suggest it one way or the other. I, I do not think there is any clear uh, link right now. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. O'Reilly, do you want to add anything? Or? Yeah, I, I completely concur. I think it's very hard to uh, identify a specific environmental uh, issue and say that's the reason uh, that cancer occurred. Uh, in truth, it's more likely to be a much more complex interaction of multiple uh, factors uh, that contribute to, to risk for this disease. And, and certainly our human nature is we always want to be able to explain it and, and uh, pointing out something uh, is sometimes, I think it, it provides a logic or a rationale to what's happening, but I think we have to be a little cautious um, because of the complexities of this disease, that it's very unlikely to be one individual single thing. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a, another question, um, which I'm, uh, Dr. Ryan, I'm going to give this question to you. It's um, a little bit not clear to some of our online participants, but maybe clear to you. Um, so KRAS type, what is on the horizon for this undruggable type? CAR-T, treatment from metastasis to the lungs. Is that a question okay. that you can address? Or? Okay. Uh, certainly, yes. Yeah. So that's a, that's a nice question. Thank you for that. So a little uh, background here. So KRAS is a gene that's uh, very commonly changed in pancreas cancer tumors. It's not one that runs in, in families. Uh, it's exclusive to the tumor, and about 95% of people with pancreas cancer will find a genetic change in this gene. So it's very characteristic uh, for this disease. And as the informed uh, caller pointed out, traditionally, this has not been a disease that we've, uh, a target that we've been successful in uh, targeting, uh, despite uh, decades of work uh, focused on this issue, because it's important not just in pancreas cancer, but in colon cancer, in lung cancer, in thyroid cancer, etc. Having said that, there are some, I think, real hints uh, on the horizon that we may be beginning to be able to uh, leverage this gene uh, from the treatment perspective. 
so there are some hints in colon cancer that we can immunize against this uh, gene change, the protein of this on the surface of cancer cells. And that's shown uh, from the technical point of view to be feasible and in a limited context was uh, successful. Having said that, that still has to be applied to, to pancreas cancer. So we're just at the cusp of, of learning how to do that uh, now in pancreas cancer. And there are other uh, drugs that uh, target subsets of KRAS gene mutations, meaning uh, the gene can be changed at several different points along it. And uh, for certain types of KRAS mutations, in particular uh, where they occur in people with lung cancer, uh, there, there are drugs that look uh, promising. And we're looking forward to see how they may be applied uh, to the treatment in pancreas cancer. So I would say stay tuned. It, it remains a very hot area uh, of active research. And there's certainly optimism there that there's going to be a way to do this. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Bhattacharya, did you want to add anything? Um, no, I agree. Um, there is a lot of uh, uh, research being done. So to put it um, simply, the KRAS gene in pancreatic cancer is constantly on. Uh, we say it's constitutively activated. So the green light is constantly on, and the question is how do you change it to a red light? And uh, there is a lot of work being done at the KRAS level and uh, the downstream pathways, as uh, Dr. O'Reilly alluded to, uh, to see how we could make it work in pancreas cancer like uh, it has been done in uh, colon and lung cancer to some extent. Excellent. Thank you. And an uh, excellent question from one of our online participants for Dr. Bhattacharya about clinical trial participation. If a patient is selected, um, for a clinical trial, does she have a 50% chance of being in the control group? Will she know which group or other studies double-blind? And could you comment about this concept of a control group and what that entails as well, because I, in terms of treatment? Doctor, uh, I'll leave it for you, Dr. Vratachari, though. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Sure, sure. Um, uh, so, um, Yes, if it's a phase two or a phase three trial and the trial is randomized, um, then uh, yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's random. So um, the patient does not know, and that's why we call it blinded. Uh, it's uh, sometimes double-blinded, as in that the treating physician does not know as well. There are some trials where at first progression, um, which means that you do a scan and there is a concern that the cancer is growing, uh, one uh, decodes it and then you unblind and the patient could go on um, the experimental therapy. So it is important to know early on what kind of a, a trial it is, um, just blinded, sometimes double blinded, and then if there is any suggestion of unblinding it during therapy. Excellent, thank you. Um, these are wonderful questions. I have to say, we have an amazing group here today um, of really excellent uh, questions um, coming from our participants here and wonderful speakers. So we also have a question about um, uh, for Ms. Petzl about the pancreatic enzymes. And I wonder if you could say just a little bit more about them because that's always an issue that people don't quite understand. And I, I know um, when we all first started working together on that, it was something that you really um, brought into this program and really importantly. So if you could say a little bit more about that. Sure. So um, for individuals that display symptoms of pancreatic insufficiency, um, there are supplemental pancreatic enzymes that are available by prescription. Um, that 
would be taken with food. So essentially, you're helping the body do what the pancreas would naturally be doing, which is delivering those enzymes that help break down food. Um, you're delivering those enzymes with, with the food. Um, enzymes work like little tiny scissors. They just cut up the food into small enough particles so that it can be absorbed from the GI tract into the bloodstream. Excellent. Thank you. <clears throat> And there's one more um, question, actually, here for Dr. O'Reilly. Um, the question is, is CAR-T therapy available for pancreatic cancer? If yes, who is eligible? <clears throat> okay, thank you. So question about CAR-T and pancreas cancer, another very topical and, and timely question. So just a, a, a back, some background here. CAR-T is uh, an immune-based approach, which is trying to switch on certain uh, T cells uh, to allow those T cells to tackle a certain target on the surface of cancer cells. And as uh, some of the audience may be aware, there are several products now that have been licensed for certain types of leukemia and lymphoma and have shown fairly dramatic results in those uh, populations. Having said that, we still have a lot to learn about how this applies for pancreas cancer, partly because the expression of a specific target uh, tends to be a bit more limited in uh, malignancies that come from solid organs like lung or liver or pancreas, uh, etc. And uh, these uh, approaches, CAR T cell approaches, are in the early phases. So a, a small number of studies have been done in uh, a limited number of patients showing that it is feasible and that there may be an early signal from the cancer treatment perspective of interest, uh, but we need many more studies to understand uh, fully uh, the safety issues and to learn better uh, how big the magnitude of this signal is. So there are a number of new studies that are starting in this area um, targeting substances called CEA or CD19 or in the future something called CA99, which we can also measure in the blood, but is pretty highly expressed on the tumor cells. So I would say this is a, a very active area of research, and uh, we're going to see um, increasing, uh, I think, discussion about this in pancreas cancer. But right now, we're just we're just at the edge. Excellent. And the last late-breaking question for one of our participants is. What about a support group? How do I get into one? So Liz, do you want to say something? Ms. Ezra, do you want to say something about that, about support groups? How do you get into Sure. That? So um, many um, hospitals uh, where you're being treated will have support groups. Um, so you would talk to the hospital social worker and find out if there's one locally. Um, we are recruiting. I am recruiting for a telephone support group for people with um, pancreatic cancer, and it's it's on Thursdays. It's from 3 to 4 Eastern Standard Time. So if you're interested in um, joining my group, you can call me at the number 1-800-813-4671. Um, the Cancer Care main number, and my extension is 6127. And I leave me a message, and I'll get back to you. Um, and we have a telephone support group um, that's a general patient group as well. Um, for, for caregivers, and um, there is a pancreatic cancer 
caregiver support group online um, that I know is very active. And um, I, I do not run that group, but I run other groups online, and I feel that they are a terrific way to get support, especially for people who don't, don't live it, you know, near a comprehensive cancer um, hospital or find traveling t too difficult. The online groups you would access on our website, which is cancercare.org, and right in the middle of our website it says um, support groups, and if you click on that, you'll get to where you can register for the online group. Well, thank you so much, Liz. And actually, you know, the online groups, many of you who are international can participate in those groups because they do run... 24, 24 hours a day for posting, so it doesn't. They're not time zone specific, so that's really helpful for people to know. Even absolutely, uh, and I can tell you from um, running two groups, many people post two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. You know, when they have time or when they feel up to it. So I think that there's a magic to these online groups because they're you're not, um, you know, pigeonholed into one time. And if you don't feel well at that time, you miss it for the whole week. But with the online group, you don't have that same problem. Excellent. Thank you. And I want to thank our speakers. You've all been extraordinary. And you can't hear us all applauding, but we all think the world of all of you. And we, we really, this has been a very informative call. And there have been wonderful questions as well from many of you who have asked such great questions, and also many of you who have been listening. So I did say that I would let you know if you still have questions. And I know there are still questions that we did not get to, so that I just want to go over with you. If you have any medical questions, of course, your healthcare team is the best place to go with those medical questions because they know all your details. But if you want to have, perhaps ask more informative questions, we do recommend that you certainly can call the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237, or you can visit their website, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature, so that's good for people both in the U.S. and internationally, where you can actually post your question and their staff will help to get the answers for you. We have mentioned a call out to PANCAN, which is an enormously wonderful organization, um, specifically to pancreatic cancer, and that's a wonderful resource to call and, uh, and to contact. They have a website, and they also have an 800 number, an 877 number, and we'll be giving all that information to you when we send you all the evaluation form to complete. You'll also be getting a summary of the resources that we may have mentioned during the call, that our speakers may have mentioned. Um, as well um, as um, other information that we think would be useful to you in really getting your questions answered. Um, now, most important as we conclude today's call, we really don't want any of you to feel alone in coping with pancreatic cancer. Now, I realize that's a, a, a complex thing to say because people often do feel alone in dealing with cancer or pancreatic cancer. And I think I think that it's a natural feeling, it's a normal feeling, but we do want you to know that you do have a connection with an organization like Cancer Care and the other organizations we've mentioned, and that you don't have to be alone. Indeed, I should mention to all of you, the American Cancer Society has a 24-hour call center. So any time of the day or night, you can actually call their 800 number. That will be listed in the resources as well. And they also have a website as well. So that's kind of nice to know that there's a place that's 365 days a year um, and 24 hours a day that you can contact. That's a very nice resource to know about. 
Um, and I think, um, but also you can contact Cancer Care. We have a host of services. We're happy to help you any way we can. And um, and we do have a program coming up that might be of interest to you. It's called Mind Body Techniques to Cope with the Stresses of Cancer, and that's going to occur on Wednesday, November fifteenth, from one thirty to three p.m. Eastern Time. I know many of you have signed up for it already, but if you haven't or didn't know about it, we will be sending you information about that as well. So again, I want to thank you for your participation. We do encourage you to complete the evaluation forms because indeed that helps us to inform. Our planning. We are planning programs for the year 2018, and your suggestions will help us to make those programs better and more useful to all of you. I want to thank you all for your participation, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your par- participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.